Like reading and writing, here at Makers Academy, we think learning to code is an essential skill in the digital age. A lot of people say it's not possible to go from no knowledge of web development to a job as a developer in a matter of weeks. But it is. And we're doing it here every single day. I went from a marketing manager to a junior developer 12 weeks at Makers Academy. I really enjoyed the course and I learned hard skills that's going to help me in my future career. I would highly recommend the course to anyone. Visit makersacademy.com and apply now. very warm welcome to another motorsport podcast we have an absolutely fantastic hour lined up for you but i do have to apologize it's me ed foster talking rather than the usual rob widows he's sadly busy today and sends his apologies so our podcast guest the winner of 31 grand prix an f1 world championship and an indycar championship Nigel Mansell, a very warm welcome today. Thank you very much and good morning to everybody. Yeah. Um, at this point, I should mention that we're not in the motorsport offices overlooking the River Thames. We are in Jersey overlooking the Nigel Mansell collection. There's an FW14 behind us. There's your GP Masters car, your Ferrari, the Le Mans car. It is a truly fantastic uh, place to be doing a podcast in. Um, at the moment, you've also got an autobiography coming out as well, which I think we should mention before we go anywhere. Um, but it's not your first one, though, is it? No, but it's probably the first uh, most incredible one that I've had totally hands-on. So uh, very excited about it, about uh, our era racing compared to present-day cars. Um, lots of uh, life after Formula One. So in some incredible stories, and uh, I think people will find it a, hopefully a very fascinating read. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting their comments. And it's, it's totally different from the first one then, or is it sort of updated? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it is totally different because there's a lot of new material in there. And, uh, and of course, uh, very different from the point of view of how it was then to how it is now, which you can only do 25 years on. Um, so over the next hour, we're going to be sort of looking at F1 at IndyCar. I think if we ran through your your career step by step, we'd probably here be, be here until 5 p.m. Yeah, too long, so, yeah. yeah <laughs> so we won't keep you for that. Um, but before I came yesterday, I was uh, looking at the Mansell Collection website and the videos and things like that. And one of the phrases you use in that is it gives you the full story about my fight to the 1992 Formula One World Championship. Is that how you still view it as your fight to get there? Yeah, I mean, it's the dogged determination that we, we came up, um, what I call uh, the hard school. Um, we, we were born at a time where, you know, the racetracks were prolifically dangerous. Uh, there wasn't any, uh, basically, um, uh, red balls around at the time to have career paths in motorsport. And certainly, um, you know, uh, other great Formula One teams at that time didn't have career paths for drivers. Uh, basically, you made your own career path, and if you're good enough, quick enough, then a Formula One team might give you an opportunity. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, basically um, having to fight for everything that we could possibly get hold of to achieve anything. And um, I think it was simply the dogged determination um, and obviously the skill factor of actually driving a car that gave me my ultimate chance with the, the late, great Colin Chapman. Um, we'll, we'll come to Colin in a, in a second, but you, you obviously you raced in Formula Ford and then I think your, your wife, Roseanne, sold the house to fund six drives in Formula 3. I mean, for many drivers, I always hear, you know, Formula 3 was actually a really pure racing, great time in their lives. Yeah, I think, but for I think you, the, it, it uh, can't have been, can it? Because yeah, there's so much weight. I think, I think the royal we is we sold the house, not Roseanne. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> but uh, we were married at the time, so it was, a, it was a joint decision. But I have to say it was a crazy decision, and I would never do that again because six weeks later after doing that and putting all your... Uh, reserves uh, into motorsport you find out very quickly that it's an enormous hole that you can't fill and um, then we're out on the street and had no home to live in so it was a, a very poor decision but it showed the commitment that we were prepared to make and we had to rebuild our lives after that. 
Did, did it ever worry you at the time, you know, when you, you sold the house, everything was into this Formula 3 campaign and whether, you know, you weren't even guaranteed any, I mean, obviously it led to a, an F1 test. I, I think we were very fortunate that uh, we got married very young at 20 and 21 and um, we didn't have anything as such. We worked tremendously hard to buy our first house, although, you know, you look back in those days, the first house cost four and a half thousand pounds and it was mortgaged to quite a lot of that anyway. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we lost everything, but we thought, well, we just have to start again. Um, but um, it gave you greater focus, greater determination. It was a life lesson that uh, sometimes just because you decide to put your all into something doesn't make it right, and it doesn't mean it's going to come right. So um, it was a wake-up call. Um, there was a lot of pain that went with that decision and a lot of regret as well because then we found out in motorsport when people promise you a lot of things especially the teams you might be racing for that then you might deliver what you can but then they'll seldom deliver what they promise they will so it was um it was a it was a huge huge wake-up call um on, on to happier times and the f3 ads uh, races led to the Formula One test with Colin Chapman. Um, talk me through that day because that must have been, you know, with everything that you had been through the last few years, to finally get a seat in a Formula One car must have been... Yeah, and, and, and you would think, well, it'd be nice and straightforward, but of course it wasn't, was it? We, uh, we were recovering, it's 1979, I can remember it vividly, we, we somersaulted at Alton Park in a Formula Three car, breaking my lower lumbar spine uh, in my back, I had a couple of vertebrae completely uh, crushed. And of course then the phone went the week after and it was um, uh, Colin Chapman's representative saying uh, Colin would like to invite you down to Port Ricard to test his Formula One car. And then basically saying that, uh, but Colin understands that you've been in an accident, are you okay? And, and I said, yeah, everything's fine. And then and, and basically I got on the phone straight away to my specialist and said, look, I don't want to hear all the negatives. I've got to drive a Formula One car in a week. What is the strongest painkillers medication? What corset or what what can I put on my back in any way, shape or form to try and give it some support? And obviously we went down to Paul Ricard to drive a Formula One car with a broken back, which is not most straightforward thing to do. And uh, But when you're young and uh, you're crazy, you tend to raise your game and able to push yourself through incredible barriers. And uh, we were able to go down there, do the test, have an appreciation, uh, make a connection with the Lotus team and Colin, the late great Colin Chapman. And it all sort of started off from there. Um, it, you, you call him the, the late great Colin Chapman now. I mean, I think that obviously goes some way to describing how you felt about him. How, how was he to work with? Because he must have had a real air well, of mystery yeah, when you arrived there. For, for me, he was majestic, uh, charismatic. He walked in the room and everyone stopped. I mean, he carried himself so well. He, he was a wealth of knowledge, uh, incredible entrepreneur, incredible designer, and, and for me, a father figure. And we got on great. Uh, we had our misunderstandings, but he'd sit me down and explain things to me and, and have a chat and tell me to trust him, which I did, and told me how things would be with the press, and he was absolutely spot on. And he was just an amazing, amazing man. And um, I mean, unfortunately, he departed prematurely, um, far, far too early, because uh, a great void was uh, uh, you know, uh, created when, of course, Colin uh, died. Do you ever think back, because obviously Peter War then took over and your relationship him, with him wasn't as good as, as it was with Colin. Um, but do you ever wonder what might have been if, you know, yeah, with your I mean, career? I mean, I mean, first of all, the, the sad thing was that, you know, um, you know, he tried to emulate Colin, which was a huge mistake. And uh, there was zero relationship uh, with, uh, with him. And, and um, the thing was, uh, if Colin has still been around, I've, I've muted this many times. Um, not at the detriment of any other team I've raced for, but if Colin had still been living, I'm sure I'd have won the World Championship a lot sooner. And uh, if Charlin, uh, Colin would have been here for a long time, chances are I would never have driven for anybody else. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what would have been, you never know. But, um, but what I do know is, uh, you know, uh, Colin was one of the great names of uh, motorsport and incredible legend in his lifetime and, and certainly afterwards. Um, because then that there was the comments that Peter made after Monaco, I think it was, when you were leading the race, um, that you wouldn't win a Grand Prix. And you actually, I was looking through your history, you had 38 retirements, let alone sort of finishes before your 
first Grand Prix victory. Was you, you know, it was obviously a fight to get there, and then once you were there, I mean, it was, you were still fighting, weren't you? I mean, how how did you cope yeah, no, with it? I think I think first of all, generalising, a lot of people say a lot of things in motorsport that they regret afterwards, and Peter War's no exception. He said some very foolish things, um, but you know. Um, the thing is, is that you know every single driver, no matter who they drive for or with, um, you know have to have um, you know this challenge. Call it a challenge. Call it a battle. Uh, call it um, you know they have to be honest with themselves because in the days that we we're driving, there's a lot of fatalities, a lot of injuries. That's why we all got the chance to drive because there are so many people every year either being killed or being injured out of the sport. There was new blood coming into the sport on a yearly basis. And uh, any young driver coming through, whether you had money or not, the risks were still the same. So when you had genuine risks, uh, unlike you know, today where it's, um, you know, the, the safety's just improved, the cars, manufacturing and, and, the, and the survival cells of a Formula One car is just so incredible. Back then, uh, every driver, no matter what background he came from, had a healthy respect to do the job. And it was a challenge. It was a huge challenge. It was a huge commitment. And, you know, if you dropped your guard while you were driving or doing your job, you could be very, very seriously hurt or you could lose your life. When you, you were known as one of the bravest drivers on the grid and, and you sort of thrived on that, I think, in terms of the, the speed with which you could drive those cars. Do you think you'd enjoy it as much nowadays with it being so safe? I mean, obviously, I, you, you I, don't want the fatalities. I, I wouldn't but use the word you thrive on anything. You know, if you're born and you're committed and you're honest and the integrity you have as a race car driver is one that you give your best in the car, I think that's why I had the relationship with the fans worldwide because they could see whether I was in a good car, bad car, indifferent car or a winning car, I gave my best. A lot of drivers won't do that because uh, they've got more common sense. Um, they're clever, if you might, might say. Um, I wouldn't change the time that I race. Uh, there's no question that present-day drivers have a different set of challenges. And um, you know, present-day cars and racetracks are immeasurably so much safer, which is brilliant. So, um, yeah, it's a very, very different time when we race to what they're doing presently today. But um, the technology has moved on and um, commerce has moved on. And, you know, you look at the commercial um, remuneration of race car drivers now to 20 years ago. It's, it's just amazing uh, what's possible today. Um, you touched on it there that, you know, because you always gave your, your maximum, that's, that's why the fans liked you. Mansell Mania. Is it was it more than that? Was it more? Was it what? Why Mansellmania? I mean, obviously you touched well, on it there, I'm, but was I'm, it more to I'm, it? I'm really the last one to ask, really, because people say about my driving, and you said being courageous. We never get to see ourselves. You know, we're in the car doing the job, so we're doing the job. But it's very flattering if people think that. And uh, you know, I, I did have a relationship and still do with the fans worldwide, which is second to none. I did drive for Ferrari and got named Il Leone, the Lionheart, which is absolutely fantastic. It's money can't buy. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, for the British Grand Prix, Mansellmania was used uh, a number of times, a number of Grand Prix, because we were able to deliver. We won five times. Uh, to be absolutely Pacific, we won four British Grand Prix and one European Grand Prix, but that was on English soil. Uh, that's why I get confused, because I think I won five British Grand Prix. But the one was at Brands Hatch in 85, which was the European Grand Prix. And then four subsequently was, um, you know, uh, one, um, uh, one after the 85, 86. And then I won the 87, 91, 92 at Silverstone. So, uh, yeah, we've, uh, we've, had, um, we've had a most wonderful um, relationship with, with the fans. And um, we've had a great, great time. D d just... Touching on that 85 race, the European Grand Prix at Brands, your, your first victory, how, I mean, can you talk me through what your feelings were as you passed Senna for the lead on home soil and it was, fi it was finally coming good for yeah, Nigel just, Mansell? Uh, I mean, the amazing thing is, is the biggest thing, I wasn't worried about being in the lead, I was worried about the car finishing the race because the reliability back in the 80s was very poor. Uh, even if you're the number one driver, you knew going into any world championship year that the car would probably break down at uh, up to 30% of the races. So, um, you know, you, you had a challenge on your hand, and that's why the rules back then is 
there were so many races you had to uh, score in, but if you scored in more races than that, you dropped points. And uh, you can imagine using that system now, can't you? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a relief to be competing at the front. It was a relief to be winning my first race. Um, but I can't tell you the relief I felt when the car came around on the last corner. And the first thoughts I had coming around on the last corner on the last lap was, if it breaks down now, I can actually coast to the finishing line and, and still win. So foremost in my mind was the reliability of the car. Then once I got past the checkered flag and realized that, well, the cars kept going and I have actually won now, then all the thoughts uh, came that, wow, this is my first Formula One Grand Prix win. And then I thought, that's pretty cool. That, that's really good. I mean, the monkey's off the back. It uh, separates uh, you from hundreds and hundreds of drivers who have driven in Formula One never to have won a Grand Prix. So then I joined another club, which is obviously you've won Grand Prix now. And of course, the next step then is win them prolifically enough that you can win a world championship, which is a far harder club to join. You always said that racing at home gave you time every lap. Um, how much time did you think yeah, it used to give you? I mean, people have debated this and, you know, some people know a little bit what you're talking about and other people say that what I'm saying is, is tosh and, and they have no idea because, you see, when you perform in front of your home crowd, it's like the Rugby um, World Championship's about to start now in England and the team manager's saying, you know, uh, let's, let's get home advantage, let's rise, raise our game. Well, that's what you do on your home soil, you know, if you're, you're doing any race, no matter whether it's a Grand Prix, and you've got home advantage, you can raise your game. Now, raising your game means you're more focused, you're more committed, uh, you're, you know, uh, wanting something more than perhaps other races you go into. You shouldn't, because if you're a professional, you want it just as bad no matter where you're racing. But home rule overcomes a lot of things and that can transmit into if you're running a faster a faster time with your running if you're racing a car faster lap times but more important than faster lap times is that you put everything in place that you run the most perfect weekend you can probably do to get the best out of yourself you manage your body you manage your mind you manage the car and uh, you know you pull things out of the hat that you wouldn't normally be able to do at other races during the year and I was always able to raise my game quite significantly at the home Grand Prix because my comfort zone was there we used to stay and live at the circuit we didn't stay in a hotel we stayed at the circuit the fans were fantastic the marshals were fantastic the, f the officials were you know the team was uh, always had barbecues because all the families used to come um, so it was just one big party um, we we put a post up on the website yesterday asking for questions, um, and we had hundreds. So <laughs> I'm going to have to pick and choose. Um, but there's one here, you know, something we were just talking about uh, from Paul King, saying, "Nigel, you were always regarded as a driver not lacking in bravery. Which of the cars you drove during your career most rewarded that bravery?" Um, no question. I mean, FW11B, the turbo car uh, with 1,350 horsepower because on some of the fast corners, uh, Silverstone 87 for one, hanging onto the car going around, stow flat out and club almost flat out. You get it wrong with the catch fence post there, then, then the chances are you'd get really seriously injured. So, But it rewarded you because as I demonstrated the last 28 laps of the race, I could catch Nelson Piquet, my teammate, and, and obviously win the Grand Prix. So uh, most rewarding time, definitely. Um, just going on to 86, um, you know, you were in within a hair's breadth of, uh, you know, that championship. How, you know, you were just talking then of how difficult it is to become a multiple Grand Prix winner and a world champion. How did you cope with that disappointment? How did you... Cause it was devastating. Um, absolutely devastating. And uh, even, you know, all these years on, I mean, 29 years on, still devastating. Um, that, you know, uh, sport can be cruel, uh, life can be cruel, and it's part of life lessons uh, with humility that, you know, you just have something in the, in the, in the, in the cup of your hand and, and then it's just totally taken away. And, um, yeah, but, you know, fortunately, just like the book, uh, there's a theme with the book, you bounce back, you bounce back, no matter what's thrown at you, you bounce back. And, that, and that's a little bit with life. You pick yourself up, you dust yourself down, 
And as long as you can still walk, talk and perform, you get on with the job. And um, I learned an awful lot from it. And um, But I wish I didn't have to experience it. <laughs> um, looking back at that year, Nelson Piquet came in. Um, what's, when you think of Piquet now, what's of sort of wounds healed or do you do you still have a problem with him or is it, is no, it easier I mean, now? You know, the thing is I've always acknowledged Nelson as a great world champion um, on his day as a sublime race car driver. Uh, what I've always maintained is that his tactics off the circuit is quite deplorable at times but he knows that. He actually admits it in different interviews at times and uh, you know that's, that's his personality and it's a great shame and you know, it's it's just one of those things, but uh, it's a great shame because he is a great driver, and um, he doesn't need to stoop to those levels. Do you, do you always say that you know you put everything into the car when you were everything into the driving when you were in the car, um, and you, you didn't care for politics at all? What you, what you wanted to do was race and race as fast as possible. Do you think the politics is is something that's a part of a Formula One driver? It's just another part of of what you need to be in in order no, to. You see, you know, I've analysed this. Time gives you <coughs> great clarity of thought. After the event, you have all the answers. When you look back and you analyze my career, I mean, I was privileged, but I was the underdog to three drivers I was teammates with for several years, and, and they're all world champions. And, you know, when you're teammates with Nelson Piquet, Alan Prost, and Keke Rosberg, you know, if you then challenge a world champion and you go quicker than him, that world champion, no matter who, how good he is or what his name is, is not going to be happy with you, especially if you're the number two driver. So... When I look back over the years, I mean, I was with a world champion. The first one I was with was Keke Rosberg. And there was no issues, no problems with Keke. It was absolutely fantastic. And if I went quicker, he just wanted to know how I went quicker. And he was a true racer, Keke was. And he would raise his game and be ultra competitive and be quicker than me again. Or we'd be very close to one another. But then when you drove with people like Nelson Piquet and Alan Prost, they would revert to outside the car with the politicking and what sponsors they brought to the team and they were outright number one so you know the number two driver shouldn't be challenging them shouldn't pressurizing them and it brought a different dynamic in altogether which all i thought i was employed to do the best job i could do to go as fast as i could and i found out with driving with some world champions that's the last thing they want you to do <laughs> <laughs> but then that's their problem, not mine. <laughs> um, would, you, would you say that you and Keke were quite similar in your approach to racing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Keke was a thoroughbred racer. He, uh, he didn't suffer falls easily. And um, we got on tremendously well and we're a formidable team. So we work very well together. Um, I've got another question here on, on something we were literally just talking about um, from uh, Peter. It says, how much downforce did the FW14B have compared to the FW14 and how much faster was the B version? Well, I mean, it's, it's probably difficult to quantify because of the evolution of the engines and the tyres every year. But uh, obviously every year we were making progress, um, but probably uh, maybe a second or so. Um, the biggest thing in those days, as uh, Ricardo Petrezzi found out in 92, is how strong you were in the corners to hang on to the car. The limiting factor of most cars in those days were how strong your upper body uh, was to hang on to the car in the middle of the corner. We had no power steering, we had no aids, and so when the car kicked back on the road, if you weren't strong enough to catch it, you know, you had to back off and catch the slide, and if you didn't, you'd have a big accident, and sometimes even when you did, you still had a big accident. So, you know, you did have to be courageous, you did have to be brave, and above all, you had to be committed to drive those cars quickly. And uh, Ricardo Petrezzi had the identical car to me, and, and yet there's some corners I was able to go through like 50 to 60 kilometers an hour faster than he was in the identical car. And that's because I had the upper body strength and the commitment and trust in the car that I'd come out the other end of the corner. Because that was the other problem. We used to go into corners that unless you were sure you are going to come out the other side, you lifted. And the reason you lifted is because you have an accident in the middle of the corner, there's nowhere to go except into the barriers. So you had a monumental accident. And today, you can go into committed corners and you can fall straight off the circuit and just drive straight back on because the barriers are 100, 200 metres away. It sorts the men from the boys, at least. 
Well, it was a different kind of commitment because you knew if you made a mistake, you were going to get hurt. And so, you know, you had this wrestling thing with your brain, keep the foot down, but then the brain would keep the foot up. And, and it was a real, real big judgment call. Um, just rewinding back to, to 87, um, the, that move at Silverstone, um, you've probably been asked about this more times than, than you can remember. Um, but just to quickly touch on it, do you, I mean, obviously the, your, the wheel weights had fallen off one of the wheels, so you had a really bad vibration. You pitted, and you were 30 seconds behind PK, I think? 28, yeah. 28, yeah. So you were reeling him in. Um, in your mind at that time, did you truly believe you could catch him? You, or was it, a, we'll give this a I go? I think within a couple of laps, we were doing the maths. <coughs> I knew um, that I could probably get close. I think it was after two or three laps of getting out of the pits, I realized that if I was really lucky with maybe one lap to go, um, I could maybe catch him. But then Nelson raised his game because they're obviously telling him in the pits that if he could maintain a certain pace, there was no way I could catch him. But then when he raised his game, what I did, I, I sort of um, held my breath on some corners. I found the strength to hang on to the car. And I said, right, qualifying laps. Do two or three qualifying laps and see how much I can gain in some qualifying laps. And I Like reading and writing, here at Makers Academy, we think learning to code is an essential skill in the digital age. A lot of people say it's not possible to go from no knowledge of web development to a job as a developer in a matter of weeks. But it is. And we're doing it here every single day. I went from a marketing manager to a junior developer 12 weeks at Makers Academy. I really enjoyed the course and I learned hard skills that's going to help me in my future career. I would highly recommend the course to anyone. Visit makersacademy.com and apply now. Gain an extra second and then extra half a second with a qualifying lap, so I was on fresher tyres. And I thought, well, if I can maintain something like 18 qualifying laps, then I could get in with one lap before the last lap. And we um, were doing the maths all the time, and so, so was the whole circuit. All the fans were doing the maths. Uh, what I didn't anticipate was having to do qualifying laps for about the last 15 laps. And I remember breaking the track record 11 times in 15 laps, which is very unusual in a Grand Prix. Quite, quite, quite unusual. Quite unusual. So, you know, the crowd, we had this Mexican wave going around the circuit lap after lap. They were cheering. You could hear the cheers over the engine. And as soon as I could see Nelson at the end of Hangar Straight, as I was coming on to Hangar Straight, I could then visualize lap on lap. Exactly. And also, as soon as I saw him, I could then see the strengths of his car and the weaknesses of his car, where he had good speed and where he had then less speed than I had. And so uh, I was planning a strategy from there on in and it worked out perfectly. And um, yeah, it was an unbelievable race. When your, your car then ran out of fuel on the, on the cooling down lap and you were engulfed by the crowds, I mean, at that moment, that surely must have felt a little bit like a world championship, that Grand Prix victory. Yeah, I mean, any win is like winning a world championship, albeit it's only one race. Uh, I think the astounding thing was a crowd, and then they were getting a bit excited, and I could see a few people wanting to try and tear the wings off or the mirrors as a, you know, uh, um, memento or whatever, and I just shouted to them. I said, look, if anything goes missing from this car, I'll be disqualified instantly. And then I had hundreds of uh, instant security guards around that car, so no one touched that car because the fans were actually electrifying. They were just brilliant. And then they lifted me above their shoulders, manhandled me, and then obviously the marshals came because they had to take me to the podium. And it was just a brilliant, brilliant uh, end of the race feeling. It was just magnificent. What did, what did you say to yourself in your, in your helmet as you sold the dummy and, and got down the inside? Uh, I, I didn't say anything to myself. A small other, smile, perhaps. Other than the fact that I said to myself, I'm going to get one chance at doing this. I knew Nelson very, very well. I knew his driving tactics. I knew if he had any chance at all, he'd force me off the road. And uh, we didn't have any um, you know, regulations that he could only go this way once and that way and defend. And um, So I knew he'd chop and change, whatever. And I just had to sell him a dummy and make sure it was a good enough dummy. But the biggest part of it was the closing speed. I had to sell him the dummy while I still had enough time to pull out and switch so I didn't lose any momentum to get past. 
and we did this very successfully and of course by the time he realized when he looked in the other mirror because when you're doing 200 miles now you don't have too much time to look in your mirrors then I wasn't there and then by the time I wasn't there and he went look the other side I was parked alongside him the other side and of course he had nowhere to go what a shame <laughs> yeah what a, what a shame um, <clears throat> The, you know, obviously, you talked about the British British fans um, and the sort of incredible relationship you had with them. Um, the the British press, so the other end of the spectrum, and you you always had a rocky relationship. Why why do you think well, that it, was? It, it, it was mixed, and um, you know, th there's no question that uh, some drivers were able to oil the wheels, shall we call it, with certain press and give them privileges and perhaps even help sometimes, uh, shall we just say, with their expenses. And then, of course, uh, I wasn't one for that at all. And um, so I had, I had some really good uh, press following and some genuine people who were very supportive. And you had some of the specialist press who were in the pockets of uh, people like Alan and uh, Nelson. And, you know, you just accepted it. Everybody sort of knew it to a point. So, uh, but it's just a shame that then their judgments and their writings um, wasn't as good as how good a reporter they were because they were biased. Do you think you would, even, you know, throughout your entire F1 career, did you, did you feel as though you have to keep proving yourself? No, or was, no. Was that, was you, you see, I think that's just a myth. Uh, I mean, every driver, every day, testing or racing, they have to prove to themselves that they can still do the job. Because if you can't do the job, you get replaced. So I think that's a myth. Uh, I mean, if you're employed to do the job, it's because um, the manufacturers or teams value that, you know, you're a good driver for them and you're committed. Um, but I rarely had to prove anything to myself other than the fact that, no, I used to say to myself, well, especially in qualifying, uh, how much was I going to put it out there today? Because there were some corners back then on all circuits around the world that you could really seriously hurt yourself. So sometimes you just had to hold yourself back a little bit, um, you know, just in case something broke on the car or something went wrong. On to Ferrari. Um, you were famously sort of the last driver to meet Enzo Ferrari, have lunch with Enzo Ferrari. Um, how how was it meeting him? Because it's a bit like Chapman, but even bigger. I I suggest. Yeah, I, I think just as much, but a different different uh, different way, different respect, different way of doing things. But I um, mean, the the thing that was so striking about Enzo was that. You know, you go out to have a meal with him and, you know, Italians are very noisy anyway, but as soon as Endo moved at all, it was like eerie. Everyone just went absolutely quiet. You hear a pin drop and just go, wow, and he hasn't even said anything. And then when they realised he didn't want to say anything or address them, then it's like instant noise again. And you go, wow, did that really just happen? Because it was like, you know, it just extraordinary and then um, obviously he, he moved his finger and he said a few words and everyone just went quiet again and and then when he finished saying a few words and everyone wah, 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 wah. and then uh, it was about sort of three or four minutes later he just moved and everyone instant silence again and he went to pick the salt up and as soon as they realized he was picking the salt up and everyone wah, 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 again but instant respect just absolutely mind-blowing so uh, yeah and the Italians, uh, they're beautiful. They, they, they um, wear their hearts on the sleeves and you know exactly where you are with them. If they're unhappy with you, they tell you. If you're happy, they're happy with you. They, they tell you, they celebrate. And I had a wonderful time with them. Wonderful, wonderful time. Did you, um, did you grow up dreaming of driving for Ferrari like so many drivers? Or was it actually just, no, I want to get to F1? It just, it just sort of um, evolved. And um, I feel very privileged that they were a part of my heritage. and. And we had a wonderful time with them. Yeah. And do we, I just want to touch on a few drivers from your career. Um, as you know, as you've alluded to already, there's, there's been some absolutely amazing champions that you raced against and beat. Um, what are your overriding memories of Senna? Just one driver that um, was totally committed in every single way, every facet. There wasn't really a flaw um, that he had with his driving other than the fact that he thought he was bulletproof. Um, I think he actually believed that he was better than anybody, which, you know, you can be as good as anybody. I don't think you can think that you're better than everybody. Um, but, um, yeah, he just covered every aspect. And, um, 
it was quite interesting to watch what he does sometimes. Did you, when you arrived in Formula One, did you, did you immediately know that he was going to be the one to beat? Well, no, because, I mean, everyone's there to be beaten. Um, it's whoever's doing the job the best at the time, and Ayrton didn't do the job to the best all the time. Um, but obviously, when he got the, uh, the right uh, team behind him, then he was formidable to beat. And then to beat him, you know, you not only had to raise your game to his level, you had to raise it above that to beat him. And that's the mistake people make in sport. They think, well, whoever's winning, you know, um, you've got to do the same as them. That's your first mistake. If you want to beat him, you have to do a bit more. And so I raised the bar from Ayrton a little bit, uh, which I think at times he didn't appreciate. I know Nelson didn't. I know Alan didn't. But, um, you know, I wanted to win and I wanted to be um, as successful as I could. So that's why that period of time in, in racing in Formula One was just so incredibly healthy because if it wasn't Alan, it was Nelson. If it wasn't Nelson, it was Ayrton. If it wasn't Ayrton, it was me. If it wasn't me, it was Michael Schumacher. If it wasn't him, it was someone else. And so the depth of world championship and prolific winners at that time was uh, second to none in Formula One history. And... Uh same again for Alan Prost. What are your what are your memories of him? And do you do you still yeah? Do you I mean, I mean, Alan Alan is um, you know is is very very good, very revered, very accomplished. Um, you know, uh, brilliant results. Um, again, some of the way he went about um, achieving that um, wouldn't get my vote. But you know what? I have to take my hat off because I mean, given my time again, perhaps I should learn something from all the four drivers who are prolific world champions and say, well, you know, um, it'd be nice to sort of um, be able to achieve what they did in a different way. And then I look at it and go, well, I didn't have an engine manufacturer in my pocket. I didn't have a fuel company in my pocket with Alf and Renault and various things. And you look at the driver and say, well, no, no matter what I did, I wouldn't have been able to compete. So um, I was there because of what I could do in a car and they were able to not only do what they could do in a car, but they had the might of their country behind them, whether it be the government, uh, whether it be uh, the uh, Renault, the uh, engine manufacturer, or Elf, the fuel company, uh, which obviously supported Alan so strongly. Going to your World Championship year, when you first tested the FW14B, did you, I mean, obviously it was really an evolution of the FW14, but did you suddenly, did you think, you know what, this? This could be. This is my year. Or well, you you, you build. You know, you, you don't just wake up one day and unless obviously you do the most incredible job like Honda and Ross Braun and Judge Jensen Button did when that car came together just for that one year when they pulled out. Um, but but I knew that if we could build on the momentum of '91, because '91 was a painful year with with reliability problems again. I mean, we were, we were going for the World Championship again, eight and one, I was second. I got within eight points of the championship and then reliability. And then, then Honda made a special engine for him with more power and then he was gone, he was disappearing. Um, so 92, I knew in the winter, that's why I made the decision not to get my foot operated on, that if it was going to happen, this was my year. I, I knew it, I could feel it. And so I didn't leave any stone unturned and hence why we won the first five races, which was just fantastic and uh, a great start to any season. Did, you, did it take a while to sink in? Because you'd had so many, I mean, you know, you'd mentioned that no, so many it, close it, shaves. It, it, didn't, it didn't take any time at all to sink in. And I'll tell you the reason why is because I'd already been bridesmaid three times. I, I'd done my apprenticeship. I'd, I'd been in loads and loads of Formula One races. I was a well-seasoned driver. I was a mature driver. I was quite old for that time. And, um, you know, I was just waiting in the wings for far too many years. And, uh, of course, when it happened in 92, it was just a breath of fresh air. And from that, you'd, um, you then quit Formula One and went to IndyCar. We won your first race at Surfers Paradise. Um, how, wh why did you find that switch easy? Why, how did it work straight away? Uh, it was it was magical. I, I went mentally into uh, America with the uh, attitude that, although I'd not done the racing series before, that this was the defense of my world championship. Although I wasn't able and afforded the opportunity to defend my world championship in Formula One, I went over to America thinking I've got to defend my world championship here. And Bernie Eccleston said, look, if you're going over there, at least go out and win it. And that's exactly what we did. And you're racing for Newman Haas. What was, what was Paul Newman like? 
He was fantastic. It was a great blend of characters with Carl Haas, the businessman, and Paul Newman, the film star. And you know, Paul Newman uh, was just an amazing individual. And uh, he said to me, uh, he convinced me to eventually uh, go over there because he said, come and have an adventure in the Wild West. He said, it is the most amazing. And I promise you, you have my full support. And, um, and he was true to his word. We had a few hiccups during the first year. And Paul was there supporting me uh, with Carl because Carl's a businessman saying we couldn't do this and couldn't do that and Paul said look we've got to do this because otherwise um, Nigel's not going to have an opportunity to win the championship so no, we all worked together and it, it worked out uh, you know, incredibly well. And how would, because you, I think, was it first practice on the ovals, you had quite a big crash. How, how was it adapting to ovals because really it, it must have been, I mean it, it's very different to what you've been yeah, doing before. Yeah, uh, oval racing is, it was horrendous. Um, it was an experience that you can't even try to describe without actually doing it. Going around in a mile circle um, on an oval in less than oh, 20 seconds, averaging over 186 miles an hour, you get dizzy. Um, it's monotonous. Um, but then throw into the equation 33 cars on the same track and you've got traffic everywhere, accident waiting to happen every split second. Um, one word, simply to sum it up, terrifying. And it was in the Indy 500 that they brought out a yellow late in the race um, and then uh, you were jumped at the restart. Was that down to, was that down to inexperience of, of you working with your, no, with your I, pets? I, think, or was I it? think two things happened. I was recovering from a massive accident only 10 days before. I had 148 stitches in my back um, and I was then racing at Indy within two weeks. Um, I think um, the yellow flag was a very unfortunate incident. There was no, no yellow flag infringement on the track. They shouldn't have put the yellow flag out. They did because I had a five second lead and they didn't want me to win the race. So they threw a yellow flag and closed everyone down. Um, you know, super speedway, you got long, long straights. Um, I tried to jump the start to get a bit of a break, but then I believe I was overtaken before the start and finish line. The rule says you can't overtake before the start and finish line, but they did anyway. So I was jumped with uh, Emerson and Larry Lindyke, um and um, ended up coming third and was very disappointed because, you know, I did everything that day to win the race and uh, to have it snatched away with just a few laps to go. I thought it was very poor form on, 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 on the side of the officials. And you mentioned there Fittipaldi, but what are your memories of Emerson? And Emerson Emerson's funny, he's great. I, I love Emerson. Um, he's a proper true racer. Emerson's never done some, anything underhand uh, that I can see in motorsport whatsoever. And, you know, he's, he's, he's just a great champion, great driver and a, a great tactician and a wonderful ambassador for the sport in himself. And, and another driver, obviously, from that era and, and decades before, Mario Andretti. What are your memories of him? Yeah, I mean, like Emerson, a great driver, great world champion, but uh, less so off the circuit. Uh, Mario can be quite political and, and underhand, but, uh, you know, great champion, great guy, um, just does things a different way. And when you say does things a different way, what do you what, what do you mean by that? I'd rather not comment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, we've got so many questions to go go on to. Um, that's not a problem at all. Uh, something here I'd, I quite like. We might have already sort of covered this, but from Tom Allen, which teammate did you admire the most? Um, I think the teammate I had the most fun with those two of them was Keke Rosberg and Ricardo Petrosi. And the, there's another one here from uh, David, which is uh, quite interesting. Why did you never become a team owner or manager? Um, simply because you have to have monumental backing behind you uh, to actually uh, afford that opportunity. And, and sadly, we, we tried, but we could never generate the kind of investment that was necessary. Um, you also did, did a few touring car races as well. It was a 98 in the Ford Mondeo at Donington, Silverstone, Brands Hatch. Um, why, why did you do that and, and did I, you enjoy I love, it? I love racing and uh, an opportunity was presented to me for all the right reasons. We did it. And then when we did it and had that wonderful race at Donington, then the funding was withdrew straight away uh, for uh, cost cutting. 
And again, like I said to you earlier in the interview, uh, when you promise things from teams and then they evaporate away, it's quite extraordinary, really. Um, were those cars, I mean, it's, this sounds ridiculous saying, you know, super touring for Mondeo. Was it, was it, were they quite difficult to drive? Because I think to get they, to a limit, they, they were they, okay. They were, but they, they were difficult to drive, but they were tame, but they were entertaining for the fans, and they were a lot of fun, and a lot of great drivers drove them. A lot of great drivers drove them. And obviously you went on to drive the GP Masters and things. Um, are there any cars that you, you look back at, you know, whether it's sports cars or whatever, and think, you know what, I would have loved to have gotten that and, and given that a go? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have um, been supported uh, when I won the World Championship in Formula One properly to defend it. I'd, I'd, I'd love to have driven for a few more teams and, uh, you know, uh, but um, we had our time and we're very grateful for that time. Um, there's, there's a question here from Steve Hopkinson, um, it's about current Formula One. Uh, what do you think of the change of regulations proposed for 2017, and do you think it's time for F1 to seriously consider closed cockpits? I think the closed cockpits thing is quite interesting with obviously yeah, talking about I the danger Yeah, I think year on year the regulations are tweaked, and, and hopefully the new regulations in 2017 will be you know, hopefully uh, better again. Um, I think for me, open wheel racing is open wheel racing and although there's been some tragic um, events that's happened over the last number of years uh, two certainly spring to mind um, is Henry Surtees and, and obviously uh, Justin Wilson um, just just dreadful and, uh, and obviously uh, Jules but um, I think Formula One should remain open cockpit not closed cockpit but then that's just my my feeling. I mean, don't forget, I drove in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So, um, you know, and, and the last 20 years has been the safest in motorsport, in the history of motorsport. At the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, motorsport is dangerous. So, um, you know, what can you say? Um, a question here from David Knowles. Uh, did you enjoy racing in F1 or IndyCar more? Oh, no, F F1 is a pinnacle of motorsport. Um, uh, but uh, there was there was facets of IndyCar that was um, incredibly challenging and in incredibly rewarding too. I mean, being on the podium and having your children on the podium with you was a very special memory with, with Paul on the podium with you as well. Um, looking back at your uh, career, do you think you'd... Um, you needed more support than some of the, some of the other drivers because you you had quite a hard time obviously from the press um, and no, so I, you were talking I, I, about I, Prost I, with I, his I, Renault backing. I, I, don't, I don't think so. You've got to qualify what support you mean from doing the job. No, from outside the job, from the point of view of uh, major lead sponsors supporting the team, so they're supporting you in that particular team, so you can have some more persuasion on what engines you get or what testing or various things and then that obviously would be very welcomed by any driver um, but but no I mean uh, I, I was supported uh, fantastically by Lotus and by Williams um, but when it comes down to the commercial choices if you have a driver which has got you know perhaps 20 40 50 million behind him to get the job done and a driver with nothing behind him well commercial forces are going to dictate so uh, there's nothing you can say about that um, and so we're, we're jumping about at the moment, but there's just we're, we're running out of time, and I want to try and get as, as many questions as possible. The uh, it's, it's probably quite a tough one. Your best race? Do you think you can pinpoint one? Um, I, I think I was very blessed to have a, a, wonder, a load of wonderful races. Really, um, I think from a technical point of view, um, there was two in '86 and '87, and I, I say '86, '87, both with Nelson. One, because in 86 I jumped into the T car, which was his car set up for him at Brands. And technically I had to relearn how to drive his car because it was very different to mine. And he drove beautifully in the race and he made one mistake and I was there at the right time to pass him. And then obviously the most incredible race in 87 at Silverstone, clawing back that deficit of 28 seconds and then doing the overtaking manoeuvre was as perfect as it can be. But there's so many other great races we did, it'd be unfair to say they're the two best because there's others as well. Um, how sort of maybe quite a difficult question, how, how would you want to be remembered by the fans? And However they want to remember me by. Um, <laughs> I, I think a driver with tremendous um, uh, commitment, 
um, honesty, integrity in the car, that no matter what car I drove, good ones, bad ones, indifferent ones, uh, I always try to give it my best. I think that's the difference in years gone by. You could see a driver carrying a car. You could see a driver putting his driving style into the car, whereas these days you can't see that anywhere near as much. And um, and and a driver that was a pure racer that you know I didn't wait for for things to happen I made things happen, and I think that's why the fans embraced my driving style and and the way I was and uh, you know it was it was great fun. Is it is it anything you change anything you do differently I mean obviously there are lots of things that happened that you you wouldn't want to have happened yeah. but do you think there's anything that you there's did there's, there's a whole number of uh, of things I mean sometimes you push too hard that you don't have to you have sometimes an accident that you think well you know even if you're 40% to blame so you know the ma major part of the accident you weren't to blame you say well could it have been avoided in hindsight than it you could have been sometimes you have to stand your ground obviously against the likes of it and center whatever otherwise you just get pushed all over but you know primarily um i think um uh, looking back i learned an awful lot of all the world champions i race with and I wasn't a political animal in any way at all. And um, perhaps, you know, even if I would sort of uh, capitulate to 10% political, I probably would have been a lot more successful. Um, so uh, you learn that with experience. And uh, But, you know, you're never going to win when your teammates against a world champion because as soon as you start challenging them, they're, they're, they're not very happy with you. So you can't win anyway. Um, and finally, before before I leave you in peace, um, you're obviously in this amazing Mansell collection down in Jersey. Um, is it, which car in here do you, when you come in on your own, do you linger over a little bit more? Is, is it the FW14 or the Ferrari, yeah, perhaps? Yeah, the, I think uh, all the above, but especially both of those. And in no particular order, one in both of them. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, you, you pinch yourself and, did I really do that? You know, did I really do that? You know? So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Nigel, thank you so much for such thank an you. entertaining and an, an honest hour. Um, it's been absolutely fabulous. Well, to all the fans and everything else, thanks for a great interview, and I hope uh, you've all enjoyed some of the insight. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they have. We'll be back next month with another podcast, so we'll see you then. Goodbye.